Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest. Lewis Alsop is the founder and CEO of Alsop and Alsop a real estate firm started in Dubai in 2008. It has now grown to over 200 people with four branches in the UAE and three in the UK. He's a prominent figure in Dubai and has been voted the second most influential person in real estate by Property Times. Today, we're going to talk about the current business climate around COVID-19, uh, the story of Allsop and Allsop and touching the future trends in real estate. Welcome. Lewis, good to speak to you. Morning. How are you? Okay. Very good. Thanks. It looks like you're at home. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely doing the whole working from home uh, thing. I think. It's, I think it's obviously everyone is at the moment. So it's just trying to adapt to your surroundings. So I've got. I've got two pillows on my laptop. Um, I've got the charging port here. My daughter's in bed upstairs. So I've got everything working at the same time. You, you manage a lot of people. We touched on some of it there. How is? How have you found working from home? Uh, it, there's, there's, there's a, it's a double-edged sword. I think the negatives are it's not what it was previously in terms of atmosphere, camaraderie, uh, the feeling. I mean, just to give you an example, we've got a 13,000 square foot office in Business Bay. And that alone, I went in there yesterday, and it's just not the same vibe. Bear in mind, I think we uploaded a video on your Loving Dubai page yeah. before, and it was everyone absolutely hammering the phones. And I went in there today, and it's just... Yeah, it's 30, 30%. So you're talking 50 people out of 250 that can go in there. It's just not the same. But what's good that's come out of this in business terms is we've really accelerated our uh, digital presence and the way that we're doing our jobs. So, for instance, you know, our administrators are currently working remotely and we've had no issues uploading new listings or pictures and we've created new new technology over, uh, you know, accelerated periods, such as we, we no longer have receipts. We've digitalized every single receipt, so there's no paper receipts anymore on our application. You go in there, put the uh, client's name, email address, picture of the checks, and we digitally send them a receipt. So there's been some good things that come out of it. It's just how to accelerate our business, but it's definitely different. Yeah, the, yeah, the digital transformation, is that something that you'd started down a path on already? And obviously this has accelerated it. Yeah, so, I mean, about a year ago, we launched some technology. So we've effectively Uberized the whole real estate process. Um, so everything from your viewing to your receiving your new listings to giving an offer to an owner, really, you don't even need to speak to an estate agent. If you really want to go down that process, you everything is digitalized. So the minute that you go on our website, uh, finish a viewing, we will push you to our website and say, hey, we need feedback on this specific viewing. Mm. When you put that feedback in, it goes directly to the owner. So the owner, when it, you know, one of the biggest, and the reason we've created just this basic tool is, I remember selling one of my properties, and once a viewing had finished, I was sitting there thinking, why is this agent not called me? What happened with my viewing? And you just want to know. So we've taken the control away from even picking up the phone. The minute the viewing's finished, we'll ask the agent, the buyer or tenant directly, what did they think of the house? And that will go straight to the owner. So yeah, we've, we've gone down the whole route of the digitalization process already. Interesting. And kind of, this is a kind of broader question and connecting it to COVID-19. Um, there's been some chat and 
business reports around uh, the, how do we call them, property aggregators and, and different things like that at the moment. Uh, going back to saying, you know, the Uber for uh, property, to explain to other people who aren't as familiar with the real estate business, you know, we, we see... Um, we see how, say, media is disrupted from our point of view with a lot of programmatic and uh, middlemen, etc. We, we hear a lot about the restaurant business with, de- with delivery aggregators. Um, what, what, how, how is the real estate business and ecosystem um, developed over the last 10 years with digital? And uh, where do you fit in all that? So it's a funny story. I mean, te- technology has advanced so much over since we started all stuff. And also, I was telling one of the uh, lads or boys in our office, quite a young lad, I think he's like 21. So when I set the company up, he would have been, what, what would he be, 11? So that just makes me feel really old. And I was telling him, I said, look, you know, just to let you know, when we agreed to sale in 2008, we would send an MOU, an agreed contract sale to a buyer, and we wait at the fax machine. So sometimes I wouldn't leave the office till 11 o'clock at night because I'd be waiting for that noise. <laughs> and you, you're celebrating the fax coming through. And, you know, the whole market ha- has changed. You know, for instance, you know, we used to get signed contract set of sales, and now it's all DocuSign. We, you know, five years ago, even three years ago, it would have been you printed it out, you scanned it, and you signed it. Now we're at DocuSign. Same with advertising. Advertising in 2008, 2009, you know, we were the biggest advocator of Gulf News. So the Gulf News paper is where we would spend our money. We don't spend any money on any print anymore. Everything that we do is digital. And I think there's still a few companies holding on to the old school approach of, of digital, but uh, sorry, of print. But digital now is 24 um, 7. You know, you, you, the, the papers, they last a day and they're gone where listings on portals and aggregators that are there for a long, long time. And it's a fantastic business, um, you know, being, being a portal uh, because, you know, effectively we need them. There's, there's no beating around the bush. They generate us a lot of business, but we also pay a lot of business, pay a lot of money for them. So, um, yeah, th- they are a key component in the property market. I think you've seen that uh, two portals have merged in the last uh, couple of weeks or so, creating a, a billion-pound business. Um, so you can really gauge which, por- which how portals much... are they? If, explain. So Bayut and Divisal have pretty oh, really? much merged okay. into one company, and you know I think one of them was valued at four hundred million dollars. The other one was valued at eight hundred million dollars. Something crazy like that. So. You can see the amount of money that is actually in it. It's effectively media, isn't it? You know that they're, they're, this, it's a media tool to to advertise properties. It's an Amazon of mm. real estate, effectively. For you know the same with Right Move and Zoopla in the UK, they are worth a billion pound each. Mm. You know, I think Zoopla is again this thing rough is eight hundred million pound value. So there's a massive value in terms of property portals, and you know all stuff and all stuff. And I think every estate agent is linked and loyal to their to their lead generation definitely mm. uh, but do you find that you know you started in 2008 and i'd love to talk about your view then on the recession and everything um but from a digital point of view you know these things were starting um what made you choose the type of company that you've chosen uh basically yeah what you know what was your kind of um business plan or business what idea? In terms of so anyone... the type of the option in real estate, you could have maybe looked at uh, creating a portal at the time uh, or yeah. doing something else. 
Okay. Um, so two things. First of all, uh, talking about the business plan aspect of it, <laughs> I think a lot of people spend a lot of time writing a business plan. And I've seen people come to me with 50-page dossiers. And people would, be, people would be so surprised if they saw me and my brother's business plan 2008 to today. It's not really much different. It's a one-page uh, action plan. So when we set it up, we had a goal. We want to bring a state agency in. We know how to do the job. This is what we need to do. We need to market here. It's very basic. Um, and then push forward 12 years, it's the same type of calculation. You know, we know how much a member of staff brings in. We know how much we need to spend. We need. We know how many uh, viewings we need to do. So there's a, there's, a, there's a model behind our business, not just look. So, for instance, we know how many listings you need to generate to sell one. You know how many, what the viewing to sale ratio is. So uh. it's not a, a crazy business plan. But when we set it up, to be honest with you, and this is the best tip I could give anyone, is you've got to go two feet deep a little bit. You've got to sort of trust in your instinct. I remember when we opened the company in 2008, I knew sort of what was going on, but we just put all our money into this rent and this office and everything that I've worked for for four years, I've put on the line. And what I'd always say is being in that environment, I think gives you that added fuel that maybe you need to work harder and longer and better because that there's no turning back at that point. I think it's 2008. I remember we got the keys to the office. It was on our Wattle Road. There's only four people to start with, including me and Carl. And it was uh, 5,000 square foot. Wow. So there's four people in this massive villa. And I remember we couldn't afford to, so you can imagine a five bedroom villa. We had five bedrooms and we unlocked, we unlocked one and put tables in there. We couldn't afford to fund the other four. So we locked them and just said they're under renovation to the staff. And then when we got more staff were making more money, we unlocked bedroom two and then bedroom three. Cool. And I remember, yeah, it was just a bit of a crazy time, but that's how our business is pretty grew. You know, pretty much grew. It's very organic. I mean, I always tell a story to everyone. When we had a boardroom in um, our first office, we had this boardroom and it didn't have a, table, a, a door in it. And my brother was like, we need a door in a boardroom. I said, no, until we make profit, we're not having a door. Month two, we had a door. <laughs> and that's pretty much how the business grew over time. And that's our business model. We're very organic. We don't take any outside investment. And we know what we're doing. You know, I've been doing this since 16 years old. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm 34 now. So I've got a lot of experience. And I worked out we've moved in nearly 50,000 people into homes in Dubai via the Allsop and Allsop brand. Amazing. So, yeah, I just think you, you sort of figure out your business plan. It's just you do what you're good at. And we're just very good at moving people into homes. It's, it's amazing. You were very young when you started this. It, you know, that like that must have been daunting. No, not really. Um, <laughs> I think when you're younger, you've got nothing to lose. It's the only thing that you've got to lose is maybe your pride and your ego of telling people you set a company up and you know you're now the CEO to then close it down in six months. But one of the the main things that got me through through all of this was um, the stubbornness. You know, I was very stubborn. There was just I, I wasn't going to let this fail at all, um, and that's why I was getting up at seven a.m. to go be in work and leaving at eleven or twelve because I just had to make it work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think when you're younger, you have less fear. I think if I did it now, if I'm going to be honest with you, put my cards on the table, I think maybe I would be thinking, oh my God, my daughter, my wife, our mortgage, you know, that our investments, we've got to look after them. You're young, you're fearless. And I think everyone should have a go at it when they're younger. Interesting. Just touching, I think, you know, related to the, uh, what do we call them? Portals or the platform or the prop tech side of things usually they raise a lot of funding, right? Like the VC, things like that. 
So yeah. I guess that answers the question that if you had done that, then you you would have let go a lot of control and you would have set up a different type of a business. You would have hired engineers as opposed to um, as opposed to people who are kind of going out and meeting people and, and uh, you know, who know the property space. Yeah, I think um, I'm not a big fan of VC, to be honest with you. I, I just, uh, I think that if you've got a good business model or business plan, why, why do you the venture capitalists? You know, you've got to gr- dr- try and grow organically. So many people are raising money on the back of a business that's not really worth that money. I've seen so many technology companies that make no money, but somehow they're magically worth $100 million. So, mm. you know, uh, I get the whole concept behind it. But for me, it's a reason that I think I'd struggle to be a public listed company or take money because I, our business, our business, not just me, is a bit of a maverick. We do what we think is good for the business and it makes you very agile. If, if we took money, we wouldn't be able to be agile. We just wouldn't be able to go and make these changes and because we'd have to tell everyone every time that you want a penny spent, you would have to make sure that, that, is, that that's being dealt with. Could, so, I mean, who, who, who's... Yeah, but so a lot of the kind of theory around, uh, sorry to focus too much on tech, but a lot of the theory around these aggregators and these portals is that they're disrupting an, a previous model. Um, you know, the, the OPAs or OTAs, the travel portals might disrupt the, a travel agency. You know, back in the day, our parents would go into a travel shop and we'd look at brochures. <laughs> you know, and like, were you threatened by that in the last 12 years? Did you think for any, for any second, oh, I don't know if what I've set up is, is future-proof for this digital world? No, because I think people are always going to need people at some point. I think there's been a couple of models that have tried to launch. One of them was Purple Bricks in the UK. Um, and they try to digitalize the whole process and they, they're doing quite a good job. But how and why that becomes such a successful business in a short time and ended up failing is again, they raised money on a business and then the money started losing business, the business started losing money. And now it's no longer, you know, they've cut all the costs. They're no longer on TV in England. They're not because at some point there's going to be a point when they go, okay, we can't fund this anymore. You know, they can't raise this money. So there's always going to be threats in the business and the threat is technology. I think that the tech will always, you know, whether you are a driver and it's, you know, a Tesla car taking over your business or media and having an AI system, you know, pumping reports out for you or real estate, you know, for instance, I know people have got digital locks on doors now where you don't even need the stage and come and do the viewing. Mm. But in our industry, there's so much behind the scenes. It's quite funny when you speak to a, a, a buyer or seller and they knock you commission. They say, "I'm not paying you that. You're not. You only open the door." Behind the scenes, there is prospecting. Whether it's door knocking, going to ask someone that it's a house for sale, mm. the flyers, the emails that go out, the calls, um, the networking, and then to upload the pictures and uh, upgrade them and create the 360 tour, and then do probably 30 viewings to get a sale. Mm. There's quite a lot in our business that happens before the sale happens. So obviously when you talk about Amazon, it's click a button, you want that, you go and get it. I can't imagine any person at the moment for their home saying, oh, I like that type of property. I'm just going to buy it because you don't know if there's a fire hydrant in front of it or a skip next to you or whatever it may be. So yeah, I think what what a, a business like ours needs to do is move with the technology that's happening at the moment. That's what we're doing. And and. In what ways? I think you mentioned Amazon. Jeff Bezos has a quote saying, um, "Your margin is my opportunity." And 
you know, if Amazon come into the real estate space, in what ways would you ad adapt? And, you know, I'm talking to someone who's set up a company in the digital era. It's not as if you're not doing lots of things already. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like obviously there's the there's the business service. And I think what what customers don't understand sometimes is that when you're doing an Amazon or a Deliveroo, those companies are running at a loss. So uh, yeah. all the things that they're doing actually sh should be charging you more. So um, how do you approach that? It happens now. I mean, for instance, you know, when we're agreeing a sale, the amount of times a tenant or a buyer that's agreed to buy it through us gets an, a call from some random person that says, I'll do it for literally next to nothing after we've agreed our flat fee. Our flat fee is 2% to the buyer, 2% to the seller. So any estate agent with a seller house will always get 4% on the sale. And we've had people come in and go, no, we'll just do it for 0.5%. No problem, just to get the deal through. Mm. So there's always going to be that disruption factor. I think that the difference is how anyone can overcome that is, number one, make sure you are doing a better service than anyone else. That's, what, that's the reason we've built all this prop tech. It's the reason we're continuing to build it is my goal is to make it really easy to buy or rent or view a house from us. Mm. And secondly, you've got to make sure you've got the most leads. And at the moment, my, my ideas behind it, how my investment and marketing tools work is you invest while, where the eyes are. The eyes are currently on property portals. Mm. So if Amazon wanted to come into the se se segment, that's cool. But two things, they've got no listings and they'd have to invest on a portal like us, uh, like Property Finder or Debizzle or Bayut. So they wouldn't be doing anything different to us except from if they're going to discount their fees. And that's what, what's happened with Purple Bricks. But I have a genuine theory of business. If you charge cheap money, unless you are Amazon, you it will run out at some point because there is no margin. You know, the only reason Amazon or Apple or these companies have low margins because they're talking billions of turnover. And a state agency is not going to be in the billions. It's it's just not. So, yeah, I, I just think that uh, there's always going to be someone trying to chip your fee, whether it's technology or whatever it is. But you've got to make sure you're doing a better job. And, you know, one of the reasons a lot of people do come to us, even when someone's offered a cheaper service, it's such a big purchase of property. Hmm. Would you want to risk it with someone you've never met before, don't know their brand, you trust them with the biggest purchase in your life? Hmm. Yeah. Not many people will. Yeah. How did you get so established? How, how has Allsop and Allsop become such a household name in real estate in the UAE and obviously in the UK as well? <sighs> Number one, time. I think time is big. I mean, we, we spend a lot of money on branding. I mean, quite an important thing that I, I like to get across to people is that, you know, we do spend a lot to make sure if you're searching for a home or you're in a city we're interested in, we, you know, we, we sponsor Coventry City Football Club in the UK. They're amazing. just about to win promotion. Read that. Yeah, that's amazing. I hope they do. I hope the season isn't cancelled. But if it, even, if, even as long as it's not cancelled, you know, even if we've got to play our games, we'll finish top, I'm sure of it. So, you know, just something like that. You know, we've opened an office in the UK. And when we opened the office, we spent money on marketing with flyers and digital. But we also, when you go to a conference city game, at one point there was 25,000, 30,000 people with your logo on. They, even if they don't know who it is at the start, if they support that club, they're going to figure out who it is and they're going to ask questions, who are our sponsors? And one of the best feelings is just walking into your home city and people are walking with your shirt on. They have no idea who I am. Yeah, no idea yeah. at all. That's so uh, cool. Just, it's just very cool. Is that, yeah, we spend a lot of money on marketing. Did, did you, sorry to go on because I'm a big football fan as well, but did you, used you go to Coventry as a kid to uh, see the football and then you, oh, yeah. you sponsored the, the football team? That's an amazing story. Like, 
we, we are we are literally diehard football fans. If we're playing football manager, we are Coventry <laughs> City. If we are playing FIFA, if we we're, we're wearing a shirt, normally it's Cobb City. You know, it's just. We're diehard. I remember going there in, in, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, we were in the Premier League. Um, and it's it, it it's not really a business decision. You know, it's, it's more of a heart overhead. You know, you can't calculate a shirt sponsor how much money it makes you because it won't mm. be a lot. Um, but I know as a Cov boy that comes from Coventry, I sponsor my hometown football club. Mm. And it's just an amazing feeling. But marketing-wise, like there's... There, there, okay. Okay, it might be emotional, but you've obviously done something right. Like, you know, a lot of people will ha- will recognize you on Love in Dubai because you're so prominent on your social channels as an individual. It's associated with that name. And, you know, sponsoring a football club is something that the biggest brands in the world do, whether it's yeah. MasterCard or uh, Match.com even do it and, and things like that. It seems to be something that's proven. And going back to the... the question about being a well, Coventry's last yeah. sponsors two sponsors were Subaru and Peugeot wow you know they're, they're, so that you're right they're, they're, and that's probably half the reason we've done it in business terms is that we want to give clients a bit of comfort when someone goes well I don't know who you are and you just go well let us show you very quickly what we're about I think it just puts a lot of people at ease that are dealing with the right people yeah yeah uh, going back to the business plan and this sort of establishment question uh, do you have a mission or a goal do you want to be the, yeah, do you have a mission or a goal? Um, it, the goal and mission changes every year. Um, the reality is if you just take the cold, hard business and not talk about anything other than that, the goal is to keep growing year on year. I think this year so far, pre-COVID, we are up 38% year on year turnover. Wow. The year before we were 50%. The year before that was about 40%. So business goal is to keep growing um, and obviously turns into a more profitable company and the more profits we're making the more we can invest in the technology and offices so you know i think maybe two years ago 18 months ago we pulled the trigger on three offices at the same time in the springs jamira golf estates and the palm jamira so we've got plans to grow we've got plans to grow the turnover but you know if you said to me what's my goal i, I want to be a- ahead of the curve in anyone to be honest with you, in the world in property and honestly the technology we've built at the moment, I've researched all the companies in the world, and I'm talking the biggest billion-pound companies like Compass, if you go and search through there in the US there. that I've searched their te- technology. I've searched Foxton's. No one already is where we are. You know, Purple Bricks, for instance, what they offer is not even our level, and they're worth hundreds of millions of pounds. And this is exciting because we're only just getting going. So, you know, my goal is I want to be known as the go-to tech company for property tech company in the world and I, I believe we can do it um you know i i can kind of in in the five years that we've been doing this little media business having a kind of a vision or a goal like that helps not to change ideas too much helps not to pivot and i can imagine if i had done this when i was in my early 20s i would have had so many times that i would have had you know, when, when things are difficult, that you just try a new idea. How did you retain that focus um, over time and how have you stayed on the same path? I've seen a couple of companies, uh, real estate companies in Dubai that have, you know, said, oh, they're going to go and get a certain amount of revenue from China uh, next year or they're going to do this next big investment or, they, you know, off plan is the next big thing. And hmm. 
to be honest with you, I, my, my, our motto in business is just do what you're good at. You know, I, I know that no, no one will be better and, uh, and have the, the processes and experience of moving a genuine family into a, a property, whether it's rent or sale. Mm. Now, we've been in the investment industry, i.e. we've been involved in um, everything you can imagine from London. We've signed properties in London, Manchester, Glasgow. Uh, we've sold um, off plan. And what it comes down to is that we're okay at that. So, you know, I don't want to be okay. And to get up and running near them levels, we would need to spend money and years of experience to get to that level. So, you know, we don't, we, we won't deviate. We, we will keep, as Dubai gets bigger, this is how also Awesome gets bigger. So, for instance, Mira hands over, we create a Mira team. Mm. When uh, Dubai, Damak Hills hands over, we've got a Damak Hills team. Supreme Dubai Hills. Man. Yeah, you know, the, the, when Dubai hands over a new product, we turn and create a team of experts around that. The perfect one is Dubai Hills. I mean, that's handed over about six six months ago or so. And now we have eight people specifically just working in Dubai Hills. And now we're the experts in there and the go-to people. Um, so, yeah, just my advice to anyone that has a business is don't deviate. Just do what you're good at and build around build around that. And, and the Dubai sort of, and we can talk about sort of 2008 and now in terms yeah. of uh, the economic climate, but Dubai is very associated with real estate because we see all these massive towers. Um, yeah. you, you must be very aligned with the kind of growth. You must believe in Dubai a lot. Has that kept your focus here? Yeah. I mean, look, f- for me, Dubai changed my life forever. You know, I, 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 I couldn't thank Dubai highly enough. If I'm 80 years old, sitting in a rocking chair in the south of France in, <laughs> in a nice chateau, the one thing I'll be telling you is that Dubai is the place that made me. You know, I come here as a boy at 19, and the amount of money and experience and friends and watching this city grow, I was telling someone the other day that when we were in the Awasa Road office I was talking about, we were selling Burj Khalifa, and it was just three stumps in the ground. Wow. Yeah, we're going back to 2008, I think it was, 2007. And I remember looking at it thinking, what is that going to look like? And then that gets built. And then Old Town Dorada gets built. And I've just watched this amazing city just be built. And it's just, it's ingrained into me, to be honest with Dubai. It's, D- Dubai is is the perfect example of what I am. It's, it's, you know, my goal is to grow and to be the best and, you know, to earn people around me as much money as I can. Um, and, I, you know, Allsop and Allsop's done that very well. It's... You know, it's changed not only my life, but a lot of people that work in my offices that have been with seven, eight, nine years. I, you know, I think about them now, and I think when they're coming over £1,000, and now they live on the golf estates, in Jamira golf estates, and they've got Range Rovers. And one of them crazily bought a Ferrari before and sold it because he couldn't turn up to viewings in a Ferrari selling a villa that's probably worth less than that. And, you know, they've bought investments, and they've just done these amazing things. I look at them and think, fair play to you. Mm. And that's what Dubai is. Dubai is, is just creates a lot of wealth and happiness. And these people have gone on to have families, and they're bringing their children up in Dubai. And, you know, it's just... Dubai is ingrained into me and I, you know, I couldn't thank Dubai enough for what it's done for us. And it's, it's only going to do more. You know, I think people that knock Dubai are the same people that knocked Dubai in 2008 hmm. and it will be the quickest place in the world to bounce back. Interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the people that you bring on board, the team, how do you identify them? Do you have a kind of a recruitment process and how, yeah. d- how do you know when you found a good one? So it's such a good question, honestly, such a good question, because I've literally toyed with this for for years on end. And I think we're very close to figuring out who the the right person is. So when we first started, what I was looking for is someone that was an estate agent, someone that 
had got experience and you know i know they were at the right age and and it got to the point where these people say yes i'm on a stage and they were coming and they just wouldn't fit into our ethos and they didn't work hard enough they wasn't positive enough so we really scaled back our our recruitment ideas of what we were looking for we had a good chat about it and we we mapped out who were the top five six seven eight people in our company and one thing came to to light with it is that these people had a really good personality whether they were a strong personality or a likable personality they were mm. good people but they were very competitive so they were in sports generally so the best lads in our office for instance all played football at a high level mm. rugby at a high level they cycle professionally wow. um, or they're doing ironmans so the type of dna that you're getting with these people you can start to build the character then you've got to have empathy and obviously all these things that we talk about a cv doesn't do it justice and that's why my theory with cvs is a little bit outdated or they're very outdated so on our website someone wants to apply for a, C- a job with us they send us a video and they attach their cv but within that video, you can get, gather if someone's like, hi, how are you doing? I wanna, and I'm, I'm interested if someone goes, hi, I've got 10 years agency experience. Mm-hmm. You know straight away, you're like, okay, you're probably not going to fit into what we want. So my me- method over our madness is people over paper. Mm. Interesting. Have you written down values and, and things like that that you look for in people? Uh, company values uh, for Allsop and Allsop? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got values. The, the, the main things for us is honesty and integrity. Mm. That's the big thing. You know, if, if if we've not done something right, then we'll put our hands up and, and deal with it. I mean, th- there's been examples. I can give you the perfect example of, of, you know, something that's cost the company money, but I had to do it because I didn't want the integrity of the business. So maybe six years ago, we had a lettings team about 50 people, and they were kept agreeing people to move into houses. People would give us a deposit, and they would agree to move into the home. They would hand over the checks. And what would happen is the estate agent would just disappear. So they'd stop picking the phone up and they'd stop WhatsApping back. And, you know, they're trying to do their new deal. Mm. So I identified as like, this is not good. You know, it doesn't look good for us. I don't want the clients to have bad experience. So we decided off the back of that, the best thing to do to offer the type of service we need and the honesty and integrity is that we've now brought in home move advisors. And these people, once the lease is agreed, they have to with the curtains, the moving, the diwa, the do, the ajari. We've got everything set up nice. uh, to make sure that the taste at the end is a sweet taste, not a bitter taste. Because, you know, I've been on the other end of it. And once you have a bad experience, you don't forget that bad experience. So, you know, we, we're doing as much as we can to keep our, our values in place, which is our honesty and integrity, because there's a lot of reason people come back to us. You know, you, you're always going to have you're always going to have someone complain that you can't hide away from that. When you move in 50,000 people into homes, mm. you're never going to have 50,000 happy people because there's some things that are out of our control. But what is in our control, we will make sure the client gets the best experience. Definitely. Interesting. I'm kind of seeing a theme here that if you identify something that could be working better and then you invest in it, you put money back into it, and it might cost you money. For, for example, if you have a pure sales team that aren't incentivized with after sales, you'll take some of your profits and build an after sales team. That's exactly what we did. So it's, it, you hit, honestly, you hit, probably hit the nail on the head there. So one thing we like to do, when we see something that works or doesn't work, we bring it in-house. So for instance, we had a mortgage team that we were working with before, and they're a very good mortgage company. We've seen it was a good business, but we get a couple of complaints about the service. So we bought a mortgage company, uh, and we brought all the process in-house. We're doing the same with the after sales. So when we agree a sale, you've got to take it from the MOU signing all the way to 
discharging the mortgage, going to the developers, paying the service fees and getting the, 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 the effects from the sale completed. And we started to get a lot of complaints about seven years ago from external companies. So we bought a conveyance company and now we've got eight people that just involved in the process of getting the sale across the line. And we, we, yeah, what we've done, you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head and we keep doing it now. We, we just keep internalizing uh, something and buying into the, the we're buying into the, the client's experience. We want the clients to have that experience. And like I said, my, my worry is I don't want our reviews on Google to all be one star and everyone hating our service. I mean, the money's, money's great and the company does make money, but the clients need to be happy as well. And that's what, if it costs me money, it costs me money. And, but some of these things are expensive. How have you done the, the prop tech solution? Have you hired engineers and developers in Dubai? Have you used third party? <laughs> and how have you, because you, you know, it's, it's also um, something new. I'm sure you, you're learning a lot about it. Every day. <laughs> so based on the story that you've just told me, it's pretty much going to roll straight into what you've, <laughs> based on what you've analyzed our business on, it's going to roll straight into what I'm about to say. So. We've got a company that's developed our website and our technology, and we spent a year and a half building it and getting it up and running. Uh, and about six months ago, we employed a chief technical officer, and he now works for us. And he was working for the company that was working for us before. So we still use the web company. We still use all their technology, but we now have some, the, the top guy that was there. He now works for Allsop and Allsop, mm -hmm. and now he reports to me and gives. he translates what I want in dumb terms into technology terms i'll say to him look this is what we need it needs to do this and he will go and map it out mm. speak to our tech team um, and he will get them to build it so we have done exactly what you said we were going to do we found something that works and we built it out and to be honest with you just this morning i've had a i had a couple of complaints um of so when we're doing the viewing at the end of a viewing we send you one link of all the properties you viewed and you go on there and give the feedback for the viewing. So there'll be five properties on one URL and there'll be a drop-down box to say what your thoughts on the property was. Had a complaint this morning that's gone straight to him because one client got five WhatsApps from us saying, mm. give us feedback, click these links. Send that to him, straight away it is sorted. Yeah. So that that's that's the beauty of bringing everything in-house. You, you, you know, When I talked before about having such an agile mobile business, even though this business is getting bigger, because it's mine, I can steer in any direction I can, which with a VC or an outside investment, I'd have to go and get approval. So that's probably quite a bit of a secret sauce, what you just said a minute ago. But I think, it, I think what you've done is a really good example for a lot of people across industry, because people think of tech as, I'm going to get someone to build my apps, or look at what, say, Property Finder or Bayout did, and we raised a lot of money. And they're daunted by the middle part. And the middle part, actually, how you've done it is one person who can speak my language. And one person who can speak my language and code at the same time is able to, it doesn't need to be uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a huge tech team. You can have a brilliant tech solution with four or five people. When we got it up and running, I think it's probably cost us a quarter of a million dollars, probably minimum to get it up and running. But... You know, the reality is that one person that we've got in, he outsources all of that work to 50 people. So I don't need 50 people on my books. But one of the good things about technology for me is that we already have a business that works. Hmm. You know, and this is the crazy thing. I've seen a couple of startups recently start. There's uh, not going to name the names of them, but there's, they're new companies that have gone in and they've tried to create this new prop tech. 
and it's great. I, I love the technology, but you've got to have a business that runs with it. It's mm. like Apple trying to launch the, the Apple Arcade, which is a new thing that come out. But if no one's buying the iPhone, what's the point of the Apple Arcade? Um, so it's, you know, again, Tesla, Tesla can give an update every week, but if no one's got a Tesla, what's the point of the update? <laughs> and that's what I see at the moment happening a lot is people are, people are building this technology without a revenue or a business. And the other scale of it is people that have a business don't want to invest their profits in technology. There's not many businesses around that, that do what we do. What about the likes of Airbnb and, you know, even in the hotel spaces like Oyo and things like that, where, where, where are you? What do you think of those? Booking.com, does that come under one? Yeah, those kind of travel portals and, yeah. Booking.com is the only portal I've used in the last 10 years. I've never booked a hotel from any other site. And the main reason for that is and it's because it's easy. Hmm. You know, it's the same reason I pretty much use Deliveroo every day. It's just easy to use, isn't it? You don't need to play around with it. You can, you can book it. So... Yeah, all of these, all of these, all of these aggregators have a place in the market. As long as it make, I think the main message is it's got to make the consumer experience really easy. Booking.com. I was on there today, and you go on there, and it GPSs what's around you and what's closest. You can search via price, and you don't need to. You know, in today's world, why would anyone go into a? I couldn't think of anything worse with about travel agencies than getting in my car with my wife, and my daughter and drive into Donata or wherever it is and say, where can we go on holiday? Let's talk through. Why do I need to do that? Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a place in the market for them. If anything, they've made Deliveroo, Uber Eats, Booking.com, Airbnb, these places, not they haven't disrupted the market. I honestly think they've taken over the market with their business model. They've, they've not disrupted it. They've added to it. But, but in terms of your space, there's a few, uh, say, what do we call them? Short-term rental or longer-term rental uh, property companies now on the prop tech side in the UAE are they a challenger a competitor or do you see them in the same Airbnb space so I think one of them um, recently launched about six months ago I think it's the guys that own Cafu I think that, that launched it and they, they, yeah. the technology looks really good urban yeah yeah I mean the, te- the technology looks good I, I, I was actually speaking to one of them before but the biggest issue they face is that they don't actually know what they are, I don't think, at the moment. Mm. You know, are they going to be a portal or are they going to be an estate agent? Because I was looking at their listings are on Property Finder and, you know, they want to be a portal. So I think with them, they have the ability to be a really good business, but it's just, it's like every business. They, they need they need products, you know. Urban can set up and they might be amazing, but they need properties. And this will be, I can see them potentially having their downfall they need listings to be able to rent. And that's where a lot of people talking about the technology you can build this tech, but if they don't have, sorry, working from home, just knock my finger off the screen then. <laughs> if they same. don't have the, if they don't have, I know, yeah, if they don't have the <laughs> listings, then the business becomes null and void. It, it doesn't mean anything yeah, with the technology and no listings. And this is what I talked about before. There's a lot of companies that are building technology without a, a, a fundamental business in place that's already running. They, they, they would have been better off. It, I, don't, I don't know how wealthy they are, but going and buying a smaller real estate company with an operation and pushing their tech into it that's already got turnover. Hmm. Um, but who am I? You know, this guy is obviously a very wealthy guy. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm conscious of the time. I want to talk about the consumer market space in, in real estate at the moment. What are your views yeah. on it? Um, I personally have a, I brought a property here in 2013, I think, and it's 
in negative equity. Uh, I'm looking at the market and the prices have dropped massively in the last year. Uh, is it a good yeah. time to buy? Uh, and how do you view? How, how do you feel about that? Let me ask you that question. Are you disappointed with that, or are you okay with that? Uh, personally, I'm okay with it because I because I I don't mind. In in 30, 40 years time, I'm probably still going to be living there. I'm I'm, I'm personally I'm okay with it because I'm living in it, and it wasn't. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was that type of investment. But just looking at it, you know, I, I'm not an expert on real estate. And obviously, if I bought it now, it's almost half the price uh, if someone's looking at it. So so here's a question for you then. So how long have you lived there for now? So eight years? Yeah, 2013, seven years, yeah. Seven years, okay. So how much would that place cost you to rent? Uh, I think... Ooh, I'm not sure. Maybe seventy at the moment, or something okay, like that. So let's call that seven four hundred twenty thousand dirhams. Four hundred twenty thousand dirhams. I guess it's not gone down four hundred twenty thousand dirhams. Uh, nearly, I think it has. Okay. So <laughs> let, 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 let's say it's gone down four twenty. Yeah. You are still in a better position because you have discharged your mortgage at five percent a year. So every year on a twenty-year mortgage, you are five percent closer to zero, which means you own it cash. So even if the market goes down, it doesn't actually matter if you live in it. It just doesn't matter. My house is down in value compared to what I bought it for. It went up. I think I bought mine in 2012, and it went up like 20% in eight months. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Mm. And then, obviously, it, it drops and it dips. But my message to you is, is that you're actually winning even in a declining market because you would have just pumped 420000 into rent over seven years. And people have this mindset where they go, it's, I'm not buying because the market's down. I'm just going to rent. And you're like, well, you, I think you've missed the concept that you still have to pay money somewhere. Mm. You either pay it to your own property, and at some point you're left with this asset, which if everything drops in value, yours is worth that value as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So whatever, if, if you go and sell your house, your next property that you want to buy will also be a lot cheaper, but you've actually got it owned in cash. Where if you do that with renting, you walk away with nothing. So as long as you're an end user... It doesn't matter if price go up or down. They will fluctuate. At some point, they will boom. But going back to the consumer end of it, the type of people that we're dealing with, and I don't know if you see my LinkedIn post I put on like last week where I put our sales board of all the deals that we're doing. Yeah. My job at the moment on social media into people is to let them know the world hasn't stopped. Hmm. You know, the reality is is that if someone wanted to buy pre-COVID, they're going. To, that's a life choice. It's not a short-term investment. They're just saying. I've been here 10 years. I don't want to pay rent. I'm going to buy a house. And to be honest with you, they're that cheap at the moment. I talk about Burj Khalifa. You can buy for 1.5 million dirhams. Mm, dirhams wow. for the, the icon in Dubai at 300,000 pounds. Wow. Like you couldn't even get a studio in London. It's not, not even a 300 square foot studio for the price you can buy Burj Khalifa. And people know this. You know what, what we've seen is that there's two angles to what's happening at the moment. Angle number one is there's a lot of big sales happening with cash. Mm. And I mean by that, in the last two weeks, not my company alone, but I know other real estate companies that are putting on their social media, they've sold a 20 million euro and a 30 million euro. Someone sold 18 plots in um, Jumeirah Bay to uh, an investor that wants to use them for a hotel. Mm. There is a lot of big deals happening, but the other aspect to it is, is that the end users are buying a house for themselves still. You did math really quickly there. That was beyond me. But Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's interesting. But I, I'll ask it like in, in another question. Are, yeah. The, I look around and I see lots of buildings uh, and I, th I think of supply and demand. 
And then I, I, I see Dubai, how it visually looks and compare it with Hong Kong and New York. Um, but then know that if I invest in those markets or even London, that uh, they always have property is always expensive there uh, or it holds yeah. value. Do you see, you know, post COVID, uh, when things bounce back and irrespective of just uh, real estate cycles, are we living in a city that will be will have really expensive property uh, compared with in New York and in London in 10, 20, 30 years time? I couldn't give you an answer on it because there's been a few times now when I've said I think the market will go up um, and it hasn't. Uh, so no one has a crystal ball because the, on the only metrics I can give you are are people moving to the city? So how you can gauge whether or not Dubai is going to grow is not based on how many you know people are uh, buying and offering. The first thing that people should look at is what the economy is. So for instance, in 2008, when I moved here, the population was 1.8 million. Mm. It's now 3.1. Mm. So the population is growing every single year. So these houses that are getting built, I remember in 2008, people going to me, 2006, sorry, JBR, who's going to live in JBR? There's too many towers in JBR. They all sold out. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened in Damak Hills. They all, no one's going to live in Damak Hills. They sold out. And the list can go on and on. The, the problem we face here is people trying to get on the ladder. There's so many people that I know would get on the ladder now, but they don't have the 20% deposit. I know the loan to value is literally just changed from 75 to 80. But in the UK, you can get a 90% mortgage. So if they mm -hmm. want to really facilitate end users, and that's how you're going to get the prices up. But no, in short, I, I couldn't say to anyone right now, will we be at London prices? Because I just can't imagine, I, I can't see them going to that level. There has to be a bounce back because let's say if you wanted to sell yours, I guess you've got a mortgage on it. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a mortgage on mine as well. Once you reach that mortgage limit, which is probably where we're both at, at the moment, someone offers you under that value, you're not selling it. That's as simple as it gets. We, we do, why would you pay to leave your house? Mm. And that's when you reach the bottom of the market because then it comes that stagnation where everyone just says, I'm not selling, that's the price. And that's very close to where we are now or where we are. So how do you run, last question in terms of yes. related in a way, um, how do you run a UK business and a UAE business and what's the future hold for Lewis and Allsop? Allsop and Allsop, sorry. Okay, so... To run a UK and UAE business is very frustrating, in, in all honesty, um, because obviously it's different time zones. When it's 3 p.m. here, it's 12. When it's 9, it's 6 when they finish work. Um, so key to having a very good international business is to have really good management. You know, one of the best things that we do is we overpay our management compared to what else in the market because you don't want to lose them people. You want to make sure they're part of what you're doing. So having good management and having good reporting in place is is massive you know i i know when our weekly meetings are i know when my reports come at the end of each week i get an email from the director in the uk to say how many valuations we've booked how many viewing so you can gauge the success and then you put action plans in place for them to to do um, regarding where allsop and allsop's going our focus is heavily on the uk and specifically the uae um you know, we would like to potentially open another office in Dubai in the next year or so. Um, we've got 51 people waking, waiting in the UK to jump on a flight to Dubai. Um, so the growth of the business it is there. Um, and we're just going to we're going to keep doing what we're doing, uh, try and do it better, invest in technology and 
you know, just keep excelling in what we're doing. We don't need to, I always say to them, well, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. We, 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 I have now 12 years of historical data of how much we write per month, per year, how we do it. Our model is just to grow that. It's just to keep growing what we're doing. Good note to finish on. And thanks for, you know, it's so positive, to refreshing to hear a success story during this time. And I'm sure everyone else listening will agree. So thanks for sharing. Congratulations on the success so far. And hopefully we'll chat again in the future. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you. See you later. Hey, guys. I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy.